know they're not clapping for me. <laughs> All right, well, let's open up in a word of prayer and we get started. Father, we're grateful for another day to uh, worship you in spirit and truth, which really is our highest calling as Christians. And so we don't take this time lightly or uh, this moment lightly. Uh, Just help us to be in a position today where we can receive everything that you would have for us. And we do, Father, take just a moment um, personally in a moment of silence just to uh, do business with you so broken fellowship can be restored if need be so that um, we can have unhindered access to you and your spirit through illumination. Father, we are grateful for the promise of 1 John 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you that in Christ our position is eternally secure. But fellowship can be broken when we follow the pattern of the world. And when that happens, we lose out on all the benefits uh, that you want to show us today. So we thank you for that provision. I just ask that you'll be with our time of um, Bible study. In this hour and in the service that follows, I ask for an undistracted environment so that we can receive from you. And we lift all of these things up in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, if you can take your Bibles and open them to the book of Ezekiel. Uh, chapter 38 and verse 10. As you know, we're continuing our verse-by-verse teaching through these uh, pivotal chapters, Ezekiel 36 through 39, in um, a series that we've entitled The Middle East Meltdown. And as you know, the reason we're going into it is these are the prophetic chapters that are basically in play right now, uh, more than any other part of the Bible I can think of, in terms of the Lord setting the stage for the end time drama. Chapter 36, as you know, is a tremendous chapter about Israel's physical and spiritual restoration in the last days. Chapter 37 is a description of what we had in chapter 36, but in the form of two metaphors or word pictures. The vision of the valley of the dry bones is metaphor number one, and the vision of the two sticks is metaphor number two. So we know that In God's timing, he is going to not just regather Israel into her land in the last days, but he's going to bring her to life, not just politically, but spiritually. And we've sort of made a big deal, if you go back into our teachings on this, in both chapter 36 and chapter 37, that there's a twofold restoration. Uh, first, Israel is regathered in unbelief. Secondly, she is restored to the Lord through national conversion. So there's sort of a question mark that looms in the reader's mind as they read those chapters and they say, well, how is God going to do this exactly? What's the means that God is going to use to bring about the regeneration of the nation once they have already been restored to the land in unbelief? And that question gets answered in chapter 38. 
chapter 38 describes what happens in between Israel's regathering in unbelief and her regeneration. It describes this tremendous northern invasion where God is going to actually draw into Israel, the land of Israel, various attacking powers. And he's going to put Israel in a position where she has no one to trust in other than the Lord. And through that uh, means of restoration, through that, Israel will be brought back to life spiritually, just as she's already been brought back to life physically. And so that's how chapter 38 fits into all of these things that we've been studying So chapter 38 is, uh, and 39 for that matter, you can divide it up into four parts, and we're just in this first part here, the invasion planned. And here we learn that there's actually two planners of the invasion. Uh, God has planned this invasion, verses 1 through 9. It's actually God putting hooks in the jaws of these nations bringing them into the land of Israel in the last days. So it's God doing all of this. But Gog, the leader of the invasion, thinks it's his idea. So you have God's intention to bring about this invasion predicted in verses 1 through 9, which, by the way, we finished last time. And now we get to verses 10 through 13, which we're going to try to cover today, which is Gog's intention. So we know that God ultimately is pulling this off, but Gog thinks he's pulling it off. And we get into his mind there in verses 10 through 13. So verses 1 through 9 is where we got a description of all of these attackers, you know, in depth, in detail. Uh, All of the different strange-sounding names that we read about here, Magog, Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, Persia, Put, Cush, Gomer, Tagorma, and put out of your mind verses 10 through 13, because we'll get to those today, but not verses 10 through 13, but numbers 10 through 13 in my outline here. Prior to Numbers 10 through 13, all of these invaders, we've gone to a lot of labor to identify for you. So we have a description of the invaders. We know exactly who they are. We have a description of God himself drawing them into the Middle East to attack Israel. We have a description of why God is doing it. He's deliberately putting Israel in a position where she's almost out of necessity having to trust in the God of her fathers. And now as you move into verses 10 through 13, you get into the mind of the human ruler, Gog, uh, who is orchestrating these things from his perspective. So notice, if you will, Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 10. Thus says the Lord God, it will come about on that day. So notice that Ezekiel is not saying this might happen. This could happen. It's not like the weather forecast, you know, where they're wrong most of the time anyway. This is something that will happen. It says, thus says the Lord God, it will come about on that day. Now, on that day is very specific because it's talking about the specific time in history when these events take place. It will come about on that day that thoughts will come into your mind. Whose mind? The mind of Gog, the orchestrator of this invasion. Thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil plan. So suddenly a thought comes into the leader of this coalition and he has evil intentions towards Israel. And what you're seeing here is the supernatural motivation for this attack. I mean, why is he attacking? He is attacking Israel at this specific time in history because wicked thoughts came into his head. 
And he, de- he developed this plan. Now the question becomes, well, who in the world would put wicked thoughts into someone's mind? Uh, I think we all know the answer to that question, right? The answer would be Satan. A lot of people have this idea that Satan cannot put thoughts into a person's mind. I do not think that that mindset is substantiated by the Bible. This is why we're told to put on the helmet of salvation. Because the wicked one constantly interjects thoughts into the mind of the believer. And I would have my own wicked thoughts via the flesh, absent that happening. So wicked thoughts, whether they come from the flesh or whether they come from the realm of the fallen demonic world, are realities for the New Testament Christian. And Satan would like nothing better than for him to implant into your mind a wicked thought, getting you to think it's God's thought, or getting you to think it's your thought. And so these thoughts come into the mind of this, um, this, this leader of this coalition, this individual named Gog. And if you don't think Satan could do that, I could give you hundreds of scriptures where he does do that. And I'll just give you one. It's in 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1. It concerns David. And it says, Then Satan stood up against Israel and incited or influenced David to count Israel. So God, at that particular time in history, did not want the leadership to count the army within Israel. Why not? Because God wanted the leadership to rest on God and not natural means. And so Satan says, I'm going to disrupt this, and he influenced David to number the troops of Israel. And it's right there in 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1. It wasn't God's thought to number the troops of Israel. The Bible is very clear. It wasn't even David's thought. It was Satan's thought. And you might remember the conversation between Jesus and Peter at Caesarea Philippi where Peter uh, acknowledges that Christ is, in fact, the Son of God. And Jesus heaps all this praise on him for that acknowledgement and says, this was actually revealed to you by the Spirit, by heaven above. And then Jesus starts talking about how he's got to go to the cross and die And uh, Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. I mean, it's an amazing chapter, Matthew 16, about verses 13 through 23, where Peter actually took Jesus aside and tried to correct Jesus, if you can imagine that. And you remember what Jesus said to Peter, Get thee behind me, who? Satan. So Jesus was acknowledging that Peter at that point was acting through satanic motivation. So Satan does this. And here it's talking about Gog, an unbelieving ruler. And suddenly these thoughts come into his mind that now is the time for the invasion. And I believe that it's none other than the devil himself who put these thoughts into the mind of this particular leader at this particular point in history Why is that? Because Satan hates the nation of Israel. Satan hates the Jewish people. You don't have to get far in the word of God to see this. There's a whole description of this in Revelation chapter 12, verses 6 through 17, where Satan is finally loses permanent access to heaven midway through the tribulation period beginning in Revelation 12, verse 6, and he begins to attack the woman clothed with the sun and the moon and the 12 stars, which is a reference to Israel. And it says over and over again in those verses that Satan was enraged with the woman. I mean, rage. That's how Satan feels when he thinks about and looks at the nation of Israel. Satan has always had a long-standing hatred 
for the nation of Israel. And that hatred began, I believe, in Genesis 12, verse 3, where God said of the patriarch Abraham, in you, the nation of Israel, in other words, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God has purposed to bless the world through Israel. First of all, he wants to bless the world. That's a wonderful thing. Amen. But then he chose the instrument through which the blessing would come. And it's very clear the blessing would come to the world through the nation of Israel. So the fact of the matter is, if you don't have this happening, all of the benefits that we have today in the year 2022, as Gentile Christians primarily, we would have nothing if God had not done this thing where he has purposed not just to bless the world, but bless the world through the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what exactly do we have because of God's decision to do this? And by the way, why did God choose the Jewish people? Well, because he's God and he can do what he wants. He made a unilateral, sovereign decision to elect a nation and to bless humanity through that nation. So what do we have today because of of what God said in Genesis 12, verse 3? Well, the first blessing that we have, and there's three principal ones. The first blessing that we have is the scripture. Romans 3, verse 2 of the Jewish people says, To them was given the oracles of God. So had God not worked sovereignly through the nation of Israel, this book that we have called the Bible, I mean, it must be important to us because our middle name is Bible, Sugarland Bible Church. Uh, we're here to study the Bible. We wouldn't even have the Bible to study if it weren't for God working through the Jewish people. So every single author of Scripture was not a Methodist or a Baptist or a Presbyterian, they were Jewish. The only, the only book of the Bible that's even debated on this ground anymore is Luke. A lot of people think Luke was a Gentile who wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts, but even that one I think is coming into more question that there's probably, Luke was probably a Jew also. In fact, Arnold Fruchtenbaum and his new Commentary on Acts, you know, lays out the reasons why Luke could very well have been Jewish rather than Gentile. So my point is, if you don't have God working through the Jewish people, you don't have a Bible. The second blessing that's come to the world through the Jewish people is the Savior. Jesus, as I said before, is not a Methodist. He was not a Presbyterian. He was not a Protestant. He was Hebrew to the core. And Matthew's genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 clearly documents his heritage as going back not just to David, but ultimately to the patriarch Abraham. In fact, Jesus to the Samaritan woman was very clear to her. He said salvation is of the Jews. It doesn't mean God loves the Jews more than anybody else. What it means is God decided to bless the world, and He, when he made the decision to bless the world, he chose the instrument for that blessing. And then there's a third blessing yet to come, is the kingdom, blessing number three, which we're waiting for. The kingdom will not be headquartered in Washington, D.C., as you know. No, no extended commentary needed there. Amen. The kingdom will be headquartered in the city of Jerusalem. And that's right. It's right there in your Bible. It's in Isaiah 2, verses 2 and 3. So you have to understand the nation of Israel from the perspective of the angelic conflict. Satan hates the Jewish people. He hates the Hebrew people, not just because they're Jewish or Hebrew, but because God has decided to bless the world through them. And his ambition, particularly with number three there, is to blot out the nation of Israel so that the kingdom will never come. 
At the end of Matthew 23, Jesus is very clear that what brings the second advent of Christ, not the rapture, but the second advent of Christ at the end of the tribulation period, will be the nation of Israel calling out to Jesus, Yeshua, as their Messiah. Once they do that nationally, the second advent happens. And Satan reasons to himself that, well, all I have to do to prevent that from happening is to blot out the Jews. Why would he want to prevent blessing number three from happening? Because he is the current ruler of this world. And he understands that once the kingdom materializes, his days as the ruler of this world are over. So he worked in history to prevent blessing number one and two. He failed there. Those came. And now he's working overtime to prevent blessing number three. So that then becomes the explanation for all of the anti-Israelism in the world. Whether it comes through BLM, Black Lives Matter, which when you look at their website is actually an anti-Semitic organization whether it comes from the group in the Congress called the Squad, uh, whether it comes from a uh, disgusting anti-Semitic piece of trash that was uh, published, oh, I don't know, probably around 100 years ago, called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, if I've got the title right, which blames all of the problems of the world on the Jews because the Jews control the banking, we're told, The Jews control the media. So anything that's wrong with the world is the Jews' fault. Uh, Whether it comes from people like Adolf Hitler, who was very, came closest to anybody I can think of, to exterminating the Jewish race, where he exterminated one third of the Jewish people. Think about that. Whether it comes from any, whether it comes from replacement theologians teaching in denominational churches, that basically will tell people that God is through with Israel and the church is has taken Israel's place. And then you say, well, excuse me, Mr. Preacher, then what do we do with the modern state of Israel today? Well, what we do with them is we do BDS, Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions. And I'm not kidding when I talk about this. There are major mainline denominations as I speak that are involved in a boycott of the nation of Israel. Protestant Christianity becomes anti-Semitic. So whether it doesn't matter what the source is, you have to start recognizing it for what it is. It's satanic. It's satanic. It's part of the angelic conflict. And the reason it's part of the angelic conflict is because Satan recognizes the potency of Genesis 12, verse 3. He hates Israel because of a sovereign decision God made to bless humanity through Israel. So when we come back to our verse 10 and we learn about this leader named Gog who's planning this invasion and thoughts come into his mind, I believe that those thoughts come from none other than Satan himself. I think Psalm 83 and verse 4 describes this perpetual spiritual conflict when it said, they have said, those are the enemies of Israel, come, let's wipe them out as a nation so that the name of Israel will no longer be remembered, close quote. Satan has done this many, many times in history. Just read the book of Esther to see an example of a plan in the Persian era to exterminate the Jews. It doesn't matter what era of history we're talking about. The motivation is ultimately satanic. And so God orchestrates this invasion, but Satan is at work putting wicked thoughts into the mind of Gog to launch this invasion. It's an evil plan. And then from there we come to verse 11, which says, And you will say, that's Gog and his coalition, I will come against the land of unwalled villages. 
I will go against those who are at rest, that live securely, all of them living with walls and having no bars or gates. Now, what's very interesting about verse 11, when it describes the security of Israel, when this invasion happens, is there's two Hebrew words used. He says, verse 11, And you will say, I will go against the land of unwalled villages. I will go at those who are at rest. Now, that's the Hebrew word, shakat, which basically means quiet, settled, and undisturbed. And then you keep reading, very bottom of the screen, that live securely, and that's a different Hebrew word, batak, all of them living without walls and having no bars and gates. You might remember verse 8, it used that identical Hebrew word, batak. It says they are living securely, batak, all of them. Now, why is it significant to point out that there's two Hebrew words used? Because a lot of people will tell you that this invasion takes place before the tribulation starts. And, and you say to them, well, how could Israel be living securely? And they would, they'll say something like this. Look at how well Israel has done in her various wars. 1948, who would have bet on the Jews, but the Jews won. 1967, who would have bet on the Jews, but the Jews won. And they would say, this happens before the Antichrist even comes on the scene, which puts the burden of proof on them to have to explain the word security, and that's how they will explain it. Now, I I quote Arnold Fruchtenbaum favorably in this church all of the time, but that's basically what his view is. He basically believes that this invasion is pre-70th week of Daniel invasion, a pre-Antichrist invasion. And a lot of people, a lot of my very good friends in prophecy circles, uh, Dr. Randall Price, uh, Thomas Ice, I can think of countless others, hold to that same view. I believe, though, that that analysis breaks down when you see that there's not just one Hebrew word here used. It's not just the word security. But thrown into the mix is the word shakat, which means quiet, undisturbed, unsettled, uh, tranquil, peaceful. Now, Israel may be very successful in her various wars, but she is in no no stretch of the imagination living in a quiet, undisturbed state. I mean, even this week, if you follow the Middle East in the headlines, Israel is besought by a wave of terrorism. So verse 11 is indicating that when the invasion occurs, it won't just be when Israel has security, but she has to be at rest. And that doesn't describe Israel pre-70th week of Daniel. I mean, that, that detail doesn't fit. So when is this invasion going to happen? When is Israel not only living in security, but being quiet and undisturbed? The only view, to my mind, that makes any sense in terms of the timing is after the Antichrist has come to power. After he has entered into his covenant with her, guaranteeing her survival. Once he does that, and by the way, that's the event that launches the seven-year tribulation period. Once he does that, Israel will not just have Batak, but she'll have Shakat at the same time. She's got to have both going for her in terms of the timing of this invasion. So we know from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 15 and verse 18, that this deal is going to be a covenant made with death and Sheol. It's called a pact, Isaiah 25, verse 15. 
And then down in Isaiah 25, verse 18, it says, Your covenant with death will be canceled and your pact with Sheol will not stand. One of the things to understand about Israel right now, she is in unbelief. She's looking for someone to help her. Particularly in light of what Blinken said, um, March the 28th, I think it was, that the two-state solution is back on the table. Now, what is the two-state solution? It is pressuring Israel to give up Judea and Samaria in exchange for the promise of peace. That is now, thanks to the current administration, official United States foreign policy. It's on the table again. The world community is pushing this. And Israel is pushed into a position now where she needs security, and because probably she gave away the Judea and Samaria, because that's the world, what the world community told her to do. And that would reduce the width of Israel by less than 10 miles. And my pilot friends say, you need at least 10 miles to shoot down an incoming airplane. And so that's what this will do. God forbid, if and when it goes through. So Israel will need security and the Antichrist will come along and say, okay, I'll give it to you. And she will reach out for this deal of the century. And the moment that happens, the tribulation period starts, but Israel enjoys Shekat and Batak at that point in time and only at that point in time. If you put the invasion before the Antichrist, before the peace treaty, you don't have the ingredients that verse 11 is speaking of. Daniel 9 verse 27 describes this treaty or this agreement with the Antichrist when it says he, that's Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many, that's Israel, Daniel 11.33, for one week. And once that is entered into, the seven-year count starts. Israel has a clock on it of 490 years called the 70 Weeks Prophecy. 483 years elapsed, ending with Palm Sunday. Isn't today Palm Sunday, by the way? That's kind of interesting. Um, And the moment the nation rejected her king, the clock stopped, leaving seven years yet future. What starts the seven years yet future? After the rapture, after the Antichrist comes to power, is this treaty that I'm talking about. Once they get the treaty, then they have security and tranquility. They have Shakat and Batak, and that becomes the point in time in which the nation is ripe for this invasion. So with all of that being said, I do not believe that this is some sort of pre-Antichrist invasion. Pre-70th week of Daniel invasion. I think that becomes almost impossible to argue for based on those two Hebrew words found in verse 11. So when will this invasion occur? It happens, chapter 38, I believe, with seal judgment number 2 which takes peace from the earth. You'll read about that in Revelation 6, verses 3 and 4. Well, why has peace been temporarily established on the earth? Because of the Antichrist's treaty with the nation of Israel, which is described in Isaiah 28, verse 15, verse 18, Daniel 9, verse 27. And I think it's also being described in Revelation 6, 1 and 2 with the rider on the white horse, the Antichrist, who brings peace to the earth. So what I'm trying to do is sort of give you a laundry list in terms of timing. I mean, why do we believe or why do I believe in the timing that I do on this? I believe in that because it says the invasion, verse 8, is going to happen in the latter times. So that pushes us into the end of the age type language. 
And then another reason it happens at that point in time is it has to happen while Israel is living securely and peacefully. And the only time in history that I can think of when she's enjoying not just Batak but Shakat is after this peace treaty is entered into. So what Israel is going to quickly discover is the deal that she just made is actually with the devil. That's why Isaiah calls her covenant a covenant with Sheol that will be abolished by God. She's reaching out to the Antichrist thinking he is her Savior and Messiah. He temporarily gives her what she wants, but obviously the peace that he offers her is very short-lived. And so you go from there to verse 12. And now for the first time you get a description of what's going on in Gog's mind as to why he is invading. I mean, we know what's going on in God's mind. God is drawing the nations into Israel like hooks in the jaw. We know what's going on in Satan's mind. Satan is actually putting these thoughts into Gog's mind to wipe out Israel once and for all to stop the manifestation of the kingdom. What we haven't seen yet is what's going on in Gog's mind. We know what God is doing. We know that what Satan is implanting into Gog's mind. But what is Gog thinking about? He's not thinking about God, capital G. He's not thinking about Satan. He may not even acknowledge the existence of Satan. I mean, Russia is an atheistic country. So what is he thinking about? Well, he's thinking about what carnal people and sinful people think about. They think about money, right? You know the expression, follow the money? If you want to know the motivations of why people do what they do, just track the money trail. And that's what the Holy Spirit is telling us to do. Look at the finances involved. So that takes us into verse 12 where Gog says in terms of his motivation to capture spoil, to seize plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places which are now inhabited and against the people who are gathered from the nations who have acquired cattle and goods and live at the center of the world. What is Gog thinking about? He's thinking about spoil, plunder, cattle, and goods. We know what God is thinking about, drawing these nations into the Middle East to put Israel in a position where she'll have to trust in him. We know what Satan is thinking about, the eradication of the Jewish people to prevent the coming of the kingdom. And now we're getting a glimpse as to what Gog, the human invader, is thinking about. He is thinking about finances and he is thinking about money. Gee, isn't that interesting? Maybe that's why the Bible says things over and over again like the the love of money is the root of what? All evil. Money's not a problem. Loving it is the problem. That's why Jesus said things like in Matthew 6, you can't serve both God and mammon. I think that's in Matthew 6 around verse 24. That's why Judas himself sold out the Messiah for 30 pieces of silver. And by the way, if you want to see that prophecy happen or predicted 500 years in advance, come out Wednesday night where we're starting Zechariah 11, which makes that prediction. tells you the exact number of pieces of silver that the Messiah would be sold out for. So it's interesting that people in human history do what they do because they're after money and they're after finances, and Gog is the exact same way. He is invading Israel because of wealth. Now, is this too hard to envision happening with inflation, gas prices, uh, 
the fact that we're no longer as Americans energy independent. You look at all of these things that are sort of, you know, the, the fuel prices, the price at the pump. You look at all of these things happening and you can start to see a scenario where Russia is very interested in wealth. Russia is very interested in money. And that's exactly what Ezekiel 38 verse 12 predicts. So that means if Gog invades Israel because of her wealth, that means as a stage setter, Israel must become wealthy. You guys agree with me on that? When you can't invade because of Israel's wealth unless Israel has what? Has wealth. And I'm here to tell you that your Bible predicts not just the regathering of the Jews into their own land in unbelief, but it predicts that they will become phenomenally wealthy in the process. This is something Moses said just before he died on the plains of Moab. He started to make predictions uh, about the future of the nation and the various tribes. And he says, of De- he says in Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, of Asher, and there it's just a matter of getting out a map and looking where Asher is located. She's sort of located up in the um, northwest part of the country, very near the Mediterranean Sea. Which, by the way, as I'll show you in a minute, a massive supply of natural gas was discovered not long ago. Moses said of Asher, more blessed than his sons is Asher. May he be favored by his brothers and may he dip his foot in oil. And you say, well, what does oil mean? Well, at at bare minimum, it means wealth. Wealth coming to the tribe of Asher. And Gog is going to want the wealth. How rich is Israel? Well, it certainly wasn't very rich in 1867 when Mark Twain wrote about it because he calls it a desolate country whose soil is rich enough, but it's wholly given over to weeds. So obviously in 1867, when he toured the land of Israel, Israel was not wealthy. But my goodness, how things have changed. Charles Feinberg, in his excellent commentary on the book of Ezekiel, says, What is it that will allow for the coalition of nations to descend upon and invade the Holy Land? The plan will be devised because of one important feature of Israel's occupation of their ancestral home, their wealth. How much we hear today on all sides of national security, social security, financial security. Men's minds are occupied with plans for security. Thus the enemy will see the opportunity of the day to invade, overrun with ease, and come off with a handsome prize. For the return people will have come with come back with much wealth. The enemy, greedy of Israel's wealth, will embark upon a quest for gain. It is now common knowledge, and he said this back around 1969, I think. He said, the, it is now common knowledge that the deposits of mineral wealth in the Dead Sea are the greatest in the world. The envious eyes of the foe will not be denied longer. The hour when Israel lives without fear of attack and will be considered the most auspicious for the invasion and the plunder. So it's interesting, uh, even recently with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, how much of the discussion by the talking heads is about money and it's about wealth as a motivation for what Putin just did concerning the Ukraine. And that's what your Bible is saying, not with the Ukraine, which I think is stage setting, but with Israel. The invasion will occur because it's all about money. Now here's something from the CIA World Factbook 2005. And you look at 
First of all, what Mark Twain said in 1867, a desolate expanse. And then you flash forward to the year 2005 and you just compare Israel's gross domestic product to that of her neighbors. And you see this prophecy coming to pass before our very eyes. Israel indeed is becoming very wealthy. She has a gross domestic product that outstrips her neighbors. And these are dated numbers because this was 2005. Here's something a little bit more recent. This is 2021, and Israel currently has a gross domestic product of $467 billion, more than Egypt, much, much more, several times over, ten times more than than Jordan, Lebanon, uh, Syria, uh, etc., Here is one report that says the value minerals of the Dead Sea is estimated at $5 trillion. Did you know that? This estimate appears to be optimistic, but it is supported in part by the report of the Crown Agents of the British Colonies entitled Production of Minerals from Waters of the Dead Sea. And it goes on and it describes all of these minerals in the Dead Sea which is making Israel very, very wealthy. And then here's another news report. In the summer of 2010, huge deposits of natural gas were found along Israel's northern coastline. Oh, my goodness, what tribe was located in that area? It was Asher. That's what Moses said all the way back in the days of Mount Sinai. Israel is actually sitting on top of a vast amount of oil. Not just natural gas, but oil. According to Harold Vinegar, the former chief scientist of the Royal Dutch Shell, the Shefla Basin holds the world's second largest shale deposits outside the United States from which around 250 barrels of oil, about the same, the same as Saudi Arabia's proven reserves. Isn't that interesting that we're now energy dependent and we're no longer producing our own sources of energy but importing them? Isn't that interesting how the United States, God forbid, could participate in this invasion? Uh, Here's another article talking about oil discovery in Israel. Israel consumes 270,000 barrels of oil per day. Although the existence of the oil in the ground is a fact, the critical phase now is to check how easily it can can be extracted and whether it involves high production costs. So according to this article, the oil is there. It's just a matter of getting it within the land of Israel. Uh, The article goes on and says, After more than a year of round-the-clock drilling, large amounts of oil have been found on the Golan Heights. Hmm, that's interesting. Russia is going to invade the mountains of Israel. That's the Golan Heights area. Estimates are that the amount of oil discovered will make Israel self-sufficient for many years to come. The article goes on talking about this. Here's something that comes from the Jerusalem Post. And it says, despite a population of only slightly more than 7 million people, Israel is now home to more than 7,200 millionaires. Of the 500 wealthiest people in the world, six are now Israeli. And all told, Israel's rich had assets in 2007 of more than $35 billion. Israel's GDP is almost double that of any other eastern country. You continue on with verse 12, and it says concerning the human motivation of the attack. To capture spoil, to seize plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places which are now inhabited, against the people who are gathered from the nations, who have acquired cattle and goods. Now look at this very carefully. Who live at the center of the world. 
Now, almost nobody in foreign policy or politics thinks this way. But if you want to understand prophecy, you have to think the way God thinks. The world community looks at Israel as just a tiny little nation in the way of progress. They're standing in the way of globalism. It's exactly how Alexander the Great looked at Israel uh, about 300 years before the time of Christ. They're just in the way. They're in the way of the new world order. Alexander the Great was the quintessential globalist. And that's how today's politicians who are trying to push us into a globalist framework look at Israel. Let's just get rid of them, is their thought process. Uh, let's, get a, let's get them out of the way. And by the way, let's get our hands on all the wealth they have there. And let's get busy setting up the new world order. But God says when you do that, you better be careful because you are, you are looking and coming against a people who are literally living at the center of the world. Man doesn't think the way God thinks. The only way you can think the way God thinks is you have to study his word. You have to have your mind renewed. They're not going to give you this perspective on CNN, I can guarantee you that much. You're only going to get it from the word of God. And God says Israel is the center of everything. Because he says they're living at the center of the world. This is not the first time um, Ezekiel spoke this. He said it back in chapter 5, verse 5. Thus says the Lord, this is Jerusalem, I have set her at the center of the nations with the lands all around her. Why is Israel the focal point of everything in terms of prophecy? It's the focal point because that's the part of the world where God entered into the Abrahamic covenant with the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and gave to them by divine decree a plot of real estate that we call the land of Israel. Now the word center here in Ezekiel 5 verse 5 and Ezekiel 38 verse 12, it's the Hebrew word for navel or belly button. Just as the belly button is the center of the body. As far as God thinks, the nation of Israel in general and the city of Jerusalem in particular is the belly button of the whole earth. This is why the return of the Jews to their land in unbelief is the super sign for the end time scenario. Because all of the other signs coming into existence now, one worldism, globalism, universal banking, the digital dollar, whatever you want to talk about, Those signs don't mean anything without Israel. But with Israel in the land, now we're in a position to look at all of the other signs that are predicted for the end of the age. Because Ezekiel says Israel is the belly button of the earth. Now I found this fascinating quote from Charles Feinberg, a Hebrew scholar. And he's quoting here the Midrash, which is a a Jewish uh, tradition. And he writes this, an interesting phrase is employed to define the place where God's people will be dwelling. It's called the middle, literally the navel of the earth, as explained in chapter 5, verse 5, which we just read. The land of Israel is at the center of the earth as far as God's purposes for the world are concerned. Rabbinic literature, now he's getting into the Midrash. Rabbinic literature states, quote, As the navel is the center of the human body, so the land of Israel is the navel of the world. Situated in the center of the world in Jerusalem, in the center of the land of Israel, and the sanctuary in the center of Jerusalem, and the holy place in the center of the sanctuary, And the ark in the center of the holy place 
and the foundation stone before the holy place because from it the world was founded. Close quote. That's Jewish Midrash. And what they're saying there in extra biblical Jewish tradition is the nation of Israel is the center of the entire world. Just like the belly button is the center of the body. And at the center of the nation of Israel is which city? Jerusalem. So in their way of thinking, Jerusalem is the centerpiece of the land of Israel, which is the centerpiece of the whole world. Now, what's at the centerpiece of the city of Jerusalem? The temple. And what's at the center of the temple? The Ark of the Covenant. The most holy place. So you have God deciding to live in the most holy place at the center of the city of Jerusalem, which is at the center of the nation of Israel, which is at the center of the entire world. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating that that's how the Jewish people see themselves. Now, where where are they getting this from? It comes right out of Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 5, and chapter 38, verse 12. And this is what the invaders are not counting on. When they just think they're invading a nation for money, no. You're invading a group of people that are the belly button or the navel of all the divine activity. Because Israel is the center of the world and Jerusalem is the center of the nation of Israel. And the Temple Mount is at the center of the city of Jerusalem. And the most holy place is at the center of the Temple Mount. That's what it's saying here. And I guarantee you when Gog hatches this plan, this is the farthest thing from his mind. Because if this is true, and your Bible says it's true, you think God is going to just sit there and let this happen? I mean, you're, you're tampering with forces when you do this that you can't possibly understand. And this is why God is going to act when this happens. So we believe that Israel is the super sign of the end times because of what I'm trying to explain. This is what William Blackstone, in a very famous book, a bestseller, entitled Jesus is Coming. Keep in mind he wrote this in 1908. Now that's 40 years before Israel's War of Independence. And he says this, Israel is God's sundial. If anyone desires to know your place in God's chronology, our position in the great march of events, look at Israel. So we believe Israel is God's, God's timepiece. It's his clock. I have heard it uh, put this way, and so I'll repeat this. When the discussion of the world moves to Israel, and by the way, that's, that's almost all the United Nations talks about anymore. What are we going to do with Israel? When the discussion of the whole planet moves towards Israel, as far as God's timepiece is concerned, that's the hour hand. Now, when they stop talking about Israel and they start talking about the city of Jerusalem, now we're on the minute hand. And when they stop talking about the city of Jerusalem and now they start talking about the Temple Mount, now we're on the second hand. That's, that's the hour <clears throat> uh, in history in which we find ourselves. Verse 13, this is interesting here. Sheba and Dedan. And the merchants of Tarshish, with all its villages, will say. Now here, Sheba, Dedan, and Tarshish are speaking to Gog with his uh, coalition. 
will say, have you come to capture spoil? Have you assembled your company to seize plunder? To carry away silver and gold? To take away cattle and goods? To capture great spoil? Question mark. Now here's what is called the lame, by many people, the lame protest. When the invasion happens, not everybody's going to be happy with it. Actually, there's going to be some, some groups that are speaking up against it. Now, it's called a lame protest because they don't do anything to stop it. Kind of like, hmm, Russia invades the Ukraine and all the United States can do is talk. It doesn't do anything to stop it. it. doesn't do anything practical. We won't even arm the Ukrainians. We can talk. We can unfriend uh, Putin from Facebook, I guess. But as far as actually doing anything tangible or practical to stop the invasion, uh, we, we, we just won't do anything. Now, not to get too far into politics, but I think things were a little different in the Trump administration. I mean, it's interesting that Putin chose to do this after Trump was out of office. No, no more extended commentary there. But it talks about these groups that don't like it, but they just talk. Talk, 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 but don't do anything to stop it. And who are these groups? Sheba and Didan. Now watch this very carefully. It doesn't just say Tarshish. It says the merchants of Tarshish. So who are Sheba and Didan? You notice we've identified all of the players in this invasion other than Sheba, Didan, and Tarshish. Who are Sheba and Dedan? Sheba and Dedan are Saudi Arabia. Because if you just look at a map, that's where Sheba and Dedan are located. One of them, you might be able to go a little further south and locate it in nearby Yemen. But it's that basic area not too far from Dubai called Saudi Arabia. That's who Sheba and Dedan are. And so the invasion starts, and they're not very happy with it. So suddenly you start running into headlines like this. Uh, Saudi prince, this is Saudi Arabia, quote, all side with Israel against the Palestinian uprising and Iran. That's Ezekiel 38, verse 13. That's what that says. I don't like Iran, one of the invaders, coming against Israel, and so I will side with Israel over Iran. Um, here is another headline. It, this one goes back to 2017, uh, but you can see a clear pattern here. It says Saudi Arabia intercepts second Yemen missile in a month. Saudi Arabia on Thursday intercepted and destroyed a ballistic missile fired from war-torn Yemen, state media reported. The second such attack this month claimed by Iran-backed Houthi rebels. So here is Saudi Arabia going against Iran. That is what Ezekiel 38 and verse 13 is talking about. It's interesting that Iran is Shiite Muslim. Saudi Arabia is a little different. It's Sunni Muslim. So that may explain why when this invasion happens, Saudi Arabia doesn't like it. But there's one other factor, and I'll briefly just explain this and close with this because this is very important to get this in. I have often wondered why in the world would Saudi Arabia, why would they protest this invasion? And then something came into existence at the end of the Trump administration called the Abraham Accords. Are you familiar with those? The Abraham Accords are not peace treaties. That's the mistake that people make in their thinking. They think it's just another peace treaty between Israel and an enemy state. That's not what the Abraham Accords are. 
The nations that have entered into the Abraham Accords are nations that have not been at war with Israel and typically are very, very small nations. Interestingly, located in the Gulf states, like the United Arab Emirates, uh, I think Bahrain, right next door to who? Saudi Arabia. And when you study the Abraham Accords, what you'll see is everybody anticipates that Saudi Arabia is the next group to enter into the Abraham Accords. What are the Abraham Accords? They are not peace deals. They are normalization agreements. Where Israel says, all you have to do is recognize our right to exist. And if you do that, we will open up the four T's. What are the four T's? Trade, travel, tourism, and technology. Which benefit the Gulf states and they benefit Israel. They take the Gulf states that have entered into these accords and they align them with Israel against Russia and Iran. So now when this invasion occurs and Sheba and Didan protest, and we used to scratch our heads. You like my invitation here? Scratch our heads. Why in the world would Sheba and Didan protest this invasion? Now all of a sudden you don't have to ask the question. Isn't that interesting? Because these are the groups that have entered into the Abraham Accords with Israel. Israel's becoming wealthy because of them, and they're becoming wealthy because of Israel. And now you have the motivation as to why they would speak up and not like the invasion. So, all of that to say, (laughs) I hope we understand as a church the time period that we're living in. Where God is taking these little intricate details, these little tiny chess pieces, and he's organizing them in such a way that the absolute specifics of his word will be fulfilled. And you say, well, who is Tarshish then? And you'll have to come back next week for that. So we'll pick it up with verse 13 next time. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for prophecy and your word. Help us to be mindful of these things and help this to revolutionize our priorities in these last days. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said. Happy limited intermission.